I have shared before that the summer before Bible college, I actually worked at a cemetery, Greenville Memorial Gardens in Greenville, South Carolina. My job was primarily grounds maintenance, you know, mow the grass, trim the bushes, weedy grave markers, but I also had the additional responsibility of preparing uh, with a team of people for burials. My, my first week, we had an interment at the mausoleum. Now, a mausoleum is an above-ground structure that holds coffins, I, I guess for people who don't want to be buried in the ground or perhaps want a head, head start, not, not sure. Well, as the new guy, I, I drew the short straw to prepare the space to receive the coffin. You see, the building was concrete, and they wanted it painted, whitewashed, if you will, uh, before the graveside, or in this case, the mausoleum side burial. So they took me there, unscrewed the four corners of the marble cover, gave me a ladder, a can of paint, and a, and a brush, it said, climb in. I'm... I remember immediately thinking the following three things. First, when I climbed in, I hoped they wouldn't think it funny to replace the cover as some practical joke. Second, I was glad spiders didn't bother me since the space was covered with spider webs. So I climbed in the space large enough to hold a coffin, hunched up, ready to, to paint, which led to my third thought. The deceased was an elderly woman. Her husband had preceded her in, in death and was in the coffin right next to me. You understand it was nothing personal, but I hope he stayed dead while I was in there with him. <laughs> in our study of Mark, we arrived this morning at the burial of Jesus Christ in a sort of above-ground mausoleum. But, oh, but next week we'll find out he didn't stay dead when others climbed in with him. Now, at first glance, this text may seem somewhat insignificant. His burial was kind of a rush job to get done before the Sabbath. There were no family members present that we're aware of. There wasn't much of a graveside service, and to this day, no one um, for sure know, knows where he was actually buried. In fact, we might be tempted to ask the question, why so much fuss about the burial? I mean, every gospel mentions it. Paul later will include it incredibly as part of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Yeah, we get that. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. Again, what's so important about this burial? I invite your attention to our text this morning, Mark chapter 15, beginning reading in verse 40. Now, there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up uh, with him to Jerusalem, came up because you go up topographically to Jerusalem from Galilee. And, and when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, 
came, a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and, and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, that's the executioner, um, he, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Are you excited? (laughs) Not much action there. Some of you are thinking, well, it's no wonder it's taken us so long to get through Mark. (laughs) How was he going to preach a message from that? Here's my question. Why is this burial so important? When we speak of the gospel, we speak of the death, burial, and resurrection. Why? What's the big deal? Our outline is going to go like this. This morning, we're going to look at the personalities around the burial. We'll spend much of our time there, and then we'll close with the purpose of the burial. Let's begin by looking at the story itself to see the different characters involved. We meet the first group in in verses 40 and 41. Actually, we're still at the cross in this particular scene. Jesus has just died, and well, the centurion is the one who gives the eulogy, (laughs) the good words. Truly, this man was the Son of God. That's incredible. This battle-toughened warrior executioner, had had seen the miracles surrounding the death of Christ, the the darkness that Mark records, but Matthew talks about earthquake and graves opening, and and, and then Mark says he looks at the way he died, and and he confesses, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's That's amazing. And then we get to the next verse, and there was some women looking on from a distance. Stop right there. I mean, why is this important? I mean, there have been a few well, unnamed women in, in, in Mark, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, for example, the woman with the bleeding issue, Jairus' daughter, she's not named, Jairus is, the, the, one that, the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, the Syrophoenician woman, the, the widow and her might, and, and the woman with the alabaster vial of perfume, not named in Mark, all of these women uh, unnamed. But all of a sudden here, we meet th- three women by name. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the last, and Joseph, and, and Salome. At first, I suppose we should meet these women. When Matthew gives the introduction, he writes, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Sounds familiar. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And he says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So the sons of of Zebedee were James and and John, and and comparing it with our text in Mark, we find that her name was Salome. So we have Mary, Mary, and and Salome. And by the way, John also tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. So we have Mary, 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 and Salome, in case anybody's confused. At any rate, Mark tells us that these women had followed Jesus from Galilee and ministered to him. There are two very important things that I want you to see here. First, they, like the disciples, the big guys, you know, uh, had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. That's significant. They didn't fly down. They didn't drive. No public 
transportation, no Apple card. They, they, they walked all the way from Galilee. This suggests to me that they were committed followers of Jesus. It's second, you notice they ministered to him. Do you know that there's only two people who, or two beings, if you will, that ministered to Jesus? These women and the angel back in chapter uh, one after his temptation. The word is diakoneo, from which we get our word deacon. They served. <laughs> they served as deacon, deaconesses. They, they, they waited on Jesus. Luke 8 indicates that they provided for him from their own resources, from their own private means, meaning there was a sense in which these women funded his ministry. Maybe, just maybe, they're starting to, get, uh, to appear a little bit more important. Now, we don't know much more about them. We, we, we really know nothing about Mary, the, the mother of James and Joseph. We're not even really sure who James and Joseph were. Now, some suggest that this was Mary, the mother of Jesus, since Jesus had a couple of half-brothers named James and, and Joseph. Mark 6 tells us about that, but, but most agree those are common names, and this would be an odd way to, <coughs> to refer to his mother, Mary. Uh, notice Mark calls James the less, more literally, the little. James the little, how'd you like that? Most surmise he was either smaller or younger, or maybe, just maybe he was James the son of Alphaeus, you know, the other disciple named James, you didn't even know there was another disciple named James, not as well known, you see, as James the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. That's just a guess. In the end, we don't really know. Now, Salome, again, was the mother of of James and John. We know her as the one who came to Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 20 and, and asked that her boys be granted seats of honor in the kingdom. You remember, grant that my boys will be seated, one on your right and one on your left. We know a little more about Mary Magdalene. She, we know she's from Magdala on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. She had been healed by Jesus who had driven seven demons from her. Now, church tradition says that Mary Magdalene was a, was a prostitute. There's actually no biblical support for that. It actually comes from a, well, if you must know, it comes from a, a sermon that a pope preached centuries ago. He got it wrong, and the church, well, they later corrected that, so I guess popes can be wrong. Dan Brown in the, in the Da Vinci Code made Mary Magdalene the wife of Jesus and a goddess, which we know, of course, is pure and absolute heresy. This is what I want you to know about these women. They followed Jesus from Galilee, just like the disciples, you know, just like Peter and James and John and Andrew and the rest. But there is a significant difference between them and the other disciples. We never see them arguing amongst themselves about which one is the greatest. We never see them boasting that they would follow Jesus everywhere, although they did. We, we, we never see them boasting that they, they would never flee, although they didn't. All of a sudden, they're looking a little bit more important, aren't they? Look down at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, that's James and Joseph, we're, we're looking on to see where he was laid. And the next time we see these... These, these women is in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, these three women again, they, they brought spices so they might come and, and anoint him. 
Drop down to verses 5, 7. We'll look at this, Lord willing, next week. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And they said to him, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. What are you doing here? Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples. Don't forget Peter. And he's going ahead of you to Galilee where you shall see him just as he told you. Here's my point. Please notice, these women were at the crucifixion. Where were the dudes? Oh, yeah, that's right. They they fled. These women were at the burial. Where were the guys? Oh, yeah, that's right. They fled. They, they, They were at the resurrection. Where were the guys? Oh, yeah, that's right. They were back in the upper room, cowering behind a locked door. Do you see? I, I love this part of the gospel. These women and these women only were at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And apparently it impressed somebody because the angel appeared to these women and these women only and said to them, don't be amazed in other texts, don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. But go tell his disciples, the ones who were hiding, who had boasted. Matthew 28 actually says, and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. I love that. Where were the guys? These women were privileged to see the empty tomb first. They were privileged to hear from the angel first. In fact, the only one to hear from the angel. They were privileged to see Jesus first, and they worshiped him first. They were privileged to carry the, the, the news of the resurrection first to the cowering disciples. It has been rightly said, the first witnesses to the gospel, the first to share the good news were these women, not the disciples, not Peter, not Andrew, not James, not John, Mary, Mary, and Salome. In fact, Bernard of Clairvaux called Mary Magdalene not a prostitute, but the apostle to the apostles. Does that make you feel good, ladies? It ought to. What's so special about them? Their pursuit of Christ was consistent and unwavering. They loved Jesus, and they wanted to be where Jesus was. When Jesus hung on a cross while all the disciples fled, they wanted to be with Jesus. When Jesus was taken down from the cross dead, they wanted to be by Jesus. When Jesus was buried, they wanted to be by Jesus. Three days later, they wanted to be by Jesus, and as a result, Jesus was by them and appeared to them first. I don't think they fully understood the gospel. I don't think they understood the resurrection. We're going to see next week that they were going to the tomb to anoint his body. They were just as surprised and frankly scared as everyone else that Jesus had arisen from the dead. But the point is their love for him and their commitment to him was unwavering. While they did not understand what was going on, they simply wanted to be by Jesus. Don't you find that to be the case, guys, that when we're questioning and we're struggling, that somehow the, the, the women in our, wives, whether our, uh, in our lives, whether our wives or our moms, or, uh, they, they seem to have everything under control. 
They loved him. They ministered to him all the way from Galilee through his death, burial, and resurrection, and he ministered the gospel to them first. Is it safe to suggest that they were the first Christians? I want to say this very gently. Society then had a tendency to overlook women. Society today has a tendency to overlook women. Jesus did not. They loved him. He loved them. We have seen much disgusting and foul news lately about men in power. Politicians, media figures, journalists, Hollywood moguls using their positions of power to abuse women. It is horrendous. It's horrible. It should not be tolerated, and to be clear, will not be tolerated here. Ladies, in a world where you are often marginalized, mistreated, exploited, abused, taken for granted, disrespected, Jesus, of greatest position of power, did not do that. Christianity elevates women in a world that often devalues them. Again, it is true that women were grossly overlooked then. They were considered unreliable, not allowed to give testimony in a court of law, in fact, if you were making up this story about the resurrection, you would never have written this. You would have, if you were writing it, you would have had Jesus appear to Peter or James or John. This story would have appeared incredulous, unbelievable. No, no way. Exactly. It's because it's not made up. And through it, Jesus elevated women. He actually had women disciples, don't miss that, who followed him in a world where rabbis never did that. It's quite, quite a savior we have. Second group of people that are associated with the burial was Joseph of Arimathea, and John tells us Nicodemus was there as well. You'll remember it was Friday the Sabbath was approaching, not just any Sabbath, this was a high Sabbath, meaning it fell during a holy week. It was the Sabbath the day before, uh, uh, excuse me, the day after the Passover. John tells us the Jews, likely the chief priests, elders, scribes, they, they approached Pilate and said, hey, listen, Pilate, it's against the law uh, for bodies to hang on a cross during the Sabbath. Well, that's not exactly right, but, you know, who cares about the law? Actually, Deuteronomy 21 says if a man has committed a, don't miss this, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, who cares about the law, right? And he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he is hanged, uh, is hanged as a curse of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. They almost got that part, they got that right, except for the part about Jesus not committing a sin worthy of death. Remember, he was innocent. Who cares about the law? And the law actually never said anything about hanging on a Sabbath. It was just hanging through the night. That's okay. They were trying to be law-abiding citizens, so they said, uh, Pilate, would you mind just breaking their legs? 
You remember this would keep the victims from being able to push themselves up to breathe and death would come in a matter of minutes. Pilate, would you mind just breaking their legs so that we can take them down from the cross? So special. They didn't want Jesus' body hanging on a cross on the Sabbath, but they would crucify the Lord of the Sabbath. Pilate gives the order with a heavy wooden mallet. They break the legs of the two insurrectionists. And within moments, one of them was in paradise. Don't, don't, don't miss that. But, but when they came to Jesus, they found him already dead, so they did not break his legs. They just pierced his side with a spear. John says that was all so that prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken, and they shall look on him whom they pierced. You see, this was prophesied. It must happen this way because God was in charge of the death of his son. Jesus is dead, so Joseph came to Pilate and asked for the body to be given him. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. They usually lasted a little longer, so Pilate asked for the centurion, that's the executioner, to make sure that he's dead, and he was, so Pilate granted the body uh, to Jesus. Don't miss that word. The the word in verse 45 is a very specific word. It, It means corpse. We don't have that because of our sensibilities, but it means corpse. It had been determined Jesus was dead. All that was left was the corpse. He's dead. Who's this Joseph? He's not mentioned before or after this. But by looking at parallel accounts, we learn the following. First, he was from Arimathea. We don't know exactly where that is. Scholars guess Ramah, where Samuel was born. It's a good guess. About 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Matthew tells us he was rich. And that he had become a disciple of Jesus, although John tells us he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. We don't know when he became a follower. Again, he's not mentioned before the burial or after. Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man. And and Mark here says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Finally, both Mark and Luke uh, tell us that he was a prominent member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin. And Luke says that he had not consented to this action that the council had taken against Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus, you see. Came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph, who had been a closet follower, was secret no longer. He gathered up his courage, approached Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. This required courage, you see, for at least a couple of reasons. First, you can be sure that his career in the Sanhedrin was over, ruined. I mean, these were the guys, the the religious leaders, who wanted to be rid of Jesus. And remember, he's not mentioned after. Some suggest it's a good guess that perhaps he was martyred because of his faith. See, the truth is it costs something to be a follower of Christ both then and now. It costs something. Not only that, was there this cost of a ruined career and reputation. There was a physical cost in that he is the one who bought the new linen cloth, wrapped Jesus' body in it, and then he put him in his own new tomb. That's interesting. Tombs cut out of rock were quite expensive. They were for the richest people. Not only that, Joseph took a gamble because crucified criminals, when he, took, when he gathered this courage, crucified criminals were not often buried. And if they were, no one else would be allowed to bury where they were unless they were buried with other criminals which explains the new tomb. You see, back then, there would have been a family burial cave, an opening with several places dug out of the wall. Either you would slide them straight in or more likely 
shelves on which they would place the bodies. Again, think mausoleum. And then after about a year, no embalming, the bodies would decay. They would go in, gather up the stones, put them in a bone box called an ossuary, move it to the side so they could use the shelf again. But by placing Jesus in his own tomb, this criminal, Joseph was losing the opportunity both for himself and his family in the future. This was a costly act, you see. John also tells us that Nicodemus, famous teacher of the Jews, likely also a member of the Sanhedrin, helped Joseph prepare the body. You'll remember Nicodemus was the guy who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, and to whom Jesus explained the necessity of the new birth. Apparently, Nicodemus listened. He brought about 75 pounds of pure uh, burial spices that were Uh, wrapped in the linen when Jesus was buried. Finally, they put him in a tomb and rolled the stone in front of the entrance. Again, very common for rich tombs. There would have been a large circular stone in the entrance, a channel cut out at the base of the rock. The stone would have been enrolled in front of the entrance. The burial would have been complete. And there you have it. Lots of attempts have been made to identify the actual burial site. There have been actually about a thousand of these burial caves that have been found uh, around Jerusalem, a few shekels to almost any uh, taxi driver in Jerusalem, and you can be taken to the site, any number of sites which claim to be the burial place of Jesus. There's good reason to believe that it was perhaps the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or perhaps the Garden Tomb. In the end, we do not know. In the end, it does not matter because His body is not there. Well, this all brings us to our second point in, in, our, in our conclusion. <laughs> you see, I go, okay, <laughs> this has been kind of exciting. Is it time to go yet? What, what is, brings us back to the question of the morning, what is the big deal about the burial? I mean, okay, he's dead. Can't we just fast forward to the resurrection? The burial is kind of a touching story, Joseph, the women, and all of that. And, but there's not a lot of action here. It's kind of mundane. Can't we just move on? And in fact, a lot of people uh, do that. They focus on the cross briefly mentioned the burial, and then speed ahead to Easter Sunday. But the gospel writers did not. They all recorded rather meticulously why. There are at least three reasons that dwelling on the burial is important. First, the burial proves that Jesus was really dead. You ever heard he wasn't? Look at all of the the solid proofs which verify his actual death. The centurion, who was an executioner, confirmed that Jesus was dead. They even thrust a spear into his side to make sure. Then Joseph and and Nicodemus prepared his body for burial, which included wrapping it tightly with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Finally, they placed the body in a tomb, rolled a heavy stone in front of it, where Jesus was kept for three days. Through the years, again, people have tried to deny the reality of the resurrection. They try to suggest, well, he wasn't really dead dead. This was not a resurrection. This was a resuscitation. They, they, they say that his body was stolen, right? We'll deal with that one in a second. Or they came to the wrong tomb. Remember, the women were there. They knew which tomb it was. All kinds of flimsy arguments to explain it away. The, the gospel accounts deal conclusively with all of them. The record is concrete. It clears it up almost as if God knew something about the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. There can be no doubt from any thinking, reasonable person that Jesus was dead and now alive. You've got to deal with that. 
was recently given a book by a, a British archaeologist, forgot I had it and, until this week. It's entitled The Final Days of Jesus. It was published in 2009. As I read through the book, try as I might, I could not determine if this guy was a Christian. Couldn't tell. Held his cards close to the vest. But he, he is a renowned archaeologist of, of Bible lands, namely Israel. And after writing the book, the final days of, of, uh, of Jesus, he gets to the last chapter before his conclusion, the chapter entitled, Who Moved the Stone? And the, the last lines of the, of the chapter read this. The reality is that there is no historical explana- explanation for the empty tomb, other than if we adopt a theological one, i.e. the resurrection. I leave it up to the reader to make up his own mind. You must deal with the rock-solid truth of the resurrection. He was dead. Second, the burial was important because it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. (laughs) That's kind of interesting. What does that mean? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Men, well, we know that he died with wicked men. And now, how, but how was his grave assigned with them? Well, again, crucified criminals were not normally buried. Their graves usually consisted of being thrown into a common grave of criminals, sometimes exposed to the elements, wild animals. Sometimes their corpses would be thrown on a refuse heap, a, a, a burning garbage dump. But Jesus, while assigned a criminal's death, that is crucifixion, and therefore assigned a criminal's burial, He did not suffer a criminal's burial. Rather, in fulfillment of Scripture, he was with a rich man in his death. Who would think of that except God? Finally, the third reason the burial is important is actually found back in Matthew. I want to look at this very briefly where we meet a third cast of characters in this drama, this burial drama behind the women and behind Joseph and Nicodemus. We read about it in Matthew 27, the last of the chapter says this. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, and that last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to him, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Chief priests and Pharisees, they came to Pilate. You have to figure that Pilate's getting rather tired of hearing about Jesus by now. After all, he'd washed his hands of the whole thing. But Jesus keeps coming up. He keeps having to deal with him. Imagine his concern three days from now when he's going to have to deal with his body being gone. They came to Pilate the day after the preparation. That is the preparation for the Sabbath. That means they came to him on Sabbath morning and said, listen, (laughs) this deceiver said he was going to rise from the dead in three days. If his disciples come and steal his body away, then the last deception, some supposed resurrection, will be worse than his first deception, that he was the Messiah. We know he wasn't, right? 
So why don't you give the order that the grave be made secure? Pilate said, fine, go ahead. And so they took a guard, either Roman soldiers, their own temple police. They posted a guard outside the tomb, and they, they even placed a seal on the entrance, meaning they, they probably poured hot wax over the cracks so they'd be able to tell if anyone moved the stone. Oh, all of this is important, you see. Listen to me. They were trying to prevent a deception of resurrection, and I would suggest they did just that. There was no deceptive resurrection. By their actions trying to prevent deception, they actually proved the reality of resurrection. They were there. There could be no other reasonable, rational explanation except genuine resurrection. <laughs> so, what's so important about the burial? Everything. It is the link between his death and resurrection that proves his death and proves his resurrection beyond any shadow of a doubt. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we come to a text that we skim over and and, and perhaps we re- re- read some of these scintillating details and go, okay, okay, some women were there and some men were there too. And, and um, so, so can't we just speed ahead to the resurrection? And yet this proves the reality of his death and the reality of his resurrection. He died. He was buried. And he was raised again the third day. And we remember through this time of communion, in Christ's name, amen.